so we're going to jump back into John 5 uh, this morning. Uh, a month ago I was here, we looked at the beginning of John 5, and we, and we read about a man being healed by Jesus, and uh, we talked about uh, those things that we, could, that we need to believe in, that we need to commit to, to see our lives transformed in the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Well, this morning we're going to look at uh, a different person in this story, and it's, it's kind of a, it could be multiple people, it could be one or two, you, you know, we don't know, but it's this idea of the Pharisees. Now, I know that a lot of times in churches, we view Pharisees a lot like in those melodrama when the villain comes out with the hat and the little mustache and he twirls the mustache and he ties up the lady and she, he sets her on the railroad tracks and he cackles the whole way and, and, uh, and then the hero comes in on the horse and all that. But, and we try to view the Pharisees that way. We see them in their robes and their long beards. and their, well, I, I want to tell you, I think most of the time the gospel writers are writing about the Pharisees because that's just how people are. They were leaders of the religious people. They were leaders at the temple. They were leaders of temple worship. But they weren't necessarily saying these are the worst people in the world. They're not making them into supervillains. You know, they don't, they're not all dressed up as one looks like the Joker. One looks like Penguin. One look, you know, they're not doing that. They, they look like just typical leaders in that community in the first century. Even their mindset and perspective wasn't just their mindset and perspective. I think the Pharisees are kind of a cautionary tale in the gospel. I think we can become, as followers of Jesus, as people who really earnestly believe in God, a creator of the universe, one who, who put everything together and one who calls his people to gather, who calls his people to follow him, who calls his people into obedience. I think we can become Pharisees as we do that. Our perspective can change. The way we act and the way we react with those around us can change. And this morning, I just want to look at this section, and I kind of want to go, there is a test we can, we can kind of apply. If we just slow down and ask ourselves and go, are we being like Pharisees? When we read these stories in the Gospels, I think we shouldn't look at the Pharisees. They're the evil people. Let's throw them out. But we really need to ask ourselves, do I identify with myself more as a Pharisee or am I more identified with the man who was healed? Some of us are really identifying more with the Pharisees. They're trying to do what's right. They're trying to do what they believe is good. They're trying to do, I think they had a, a purpose to want to lift up God, to want to lift up, to try to bring people into obedience. They were just doing it in a harmful and unhealthy way. And I want to ask those questions this morning. So as we launch into this, uh, I'm going to read uh, out of um, verses 19 through 30, okay? So Jesus gives them this answer, and them are the Pharisees, the leaders, uh, the, the religious leaders of the day. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He could do only what he sees his father doing. 
Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Don't be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your word will be used by your spirit to transform us, to mold us more and more into the image of your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Real quick, the next, the next slide, uh, I didn't show a picture last week. Somebody asked me about a picture and I didn't have one last week. So this is our most recent picture uh, of our family. Uh, I did not get Cara's permission to show uh, camp hair. And so uh, uh, I wore a hat. And uh, so, you know, I, I, I was, uh, because I knew I was going to use this picture. No, I didn't. But, but uh, in this picture, you have myself, you have Kara in the middle. That's my wife. You have Kendra's our oldest between Kara and myself. Uh, she is 25? 25. 25 as of last week. Look at that. And, uh, and she lives up in Seattle. So does our son who's on Kara's right, uh, our left of Kara. Uh, his name is Nick. And uh, he is getting married next month to Missy, who's right, uh, uh, right beside him. Uh, we are excited. Uh, this was actually the first time, I think, in five years uh, that we've been at the family reunion all together. Uh, and this is the first time Missy's been with us. So uh, we have a big family reunion. That's a lot of fun. So anyway, that's for the two of you who were curious about it. And so... Uh, <laughs> So, uh, and the next slide, though, is, um, is, is kind of where I want to start this. And, and uh, uh, about, well, on our 25th anniversary, probably about, what, six years ago, before that, Kara uh, tells me, we were trying to plan a trip, and Kara tells me, she says, I'd like to go on a dive trip. I'd like to go on a dive. Um, I was throwing out suggestions and, and opportunities, and she really liked the idea of going diving and learning how to dive, which I was really excited about because I learned how to dive in college. And I stopped diving because I didn't have 
divers around me. You know, I didn't, and CARA wasn't really interested in it. And so uh, we, we got CARA certified and we started diving and, and uh, I, got, I got further and further and further and so I, I'm a dive master now. And, uh, but one of the things in diving is we have a lot of gauges, right? You have a depth gauge that tells you how deep you go. How many de- people in here have gotten certified maybe on vacation or maybe you've been on a, a Discover trip? There you go. All right, so I'll preach with you. And then, uh, and so, uh, but, but you have a depth gauge because you can only go so deep. And what happens at depth when you're breathing in gases, uh, you got to be careful because you could do some damage to your body. And so you pay attention to that. You have, you have an oxygen gauge, which is uh, uh, a pressure gauge. Um, and so that's what this is, and this is telling you how much pressure you have in your tank of air. And so, uh, because as you can assume, it's not good to have no air at 100 feet down, right? I mean, come on, we, we, I, I just gave you the first lesson in diving right there. Don't be an empty tank at 100 feet down. So, so but anyway, they, they, you have these gauges, and those gauges kind of determine you have a compass, so that when you're underwater, you can kind of get back to where you started, you know, so you don't have to go underwater and then rise up here and go, all right, where am I? How do I get back? No, you use your compass. You go back and forth. You have a, a, a depth I talked about. You have, a, oh, and, and then on some of the more fancy ones, I have, a, I have one that's a watch that kind of tells you how much uh, gas your body's absorbing, nitrogen gas that your body's absorbing, and you have to kind of... Uh, come back up to the surface and wait for that to go back down before your next dive. All of this is for your safety. All of this is for your health. All of this is so you enjoy your diving much better. I'm going to encourage you this morning that you need to do this for life. Okay? You need to be able to stop and look at the gauges of your life and measure those and see how healthy you are see how productive you could be, to see how happy you could be in the midst of life. But I think a lot of times we're like, you know, I think humans are fluid. You know, we kind of just spread our schedule out and we just fill it up. You know, even when we clear our schedule, it's just eventually something else will just take that over and it just comes over. um, My dad used to have a stupid dad joke. Whenever we went out to to dinner, he'd have his glass and he'd drink all his water and the, and the uh, waitress would come up and, and she'd go, would you like more water, sir? And he'd say, sure, half a glass. And she'd start pouring it and he goes, oh, the right side. Dad jokes. And so he would, he would sit there and he would say that, but, but see, we're fluid. We, we don't function that way. We, we, we try to do that. We try to stay, but, but we eventually just kind of plop down you know, like slime just waiting there, you know. It doesn't go as fast as water, but eventually it just kind of all flattens out. I want to encourage you that you got to take the time to stop. You have to take the time to ask yourselves some key questions to make sure you're moving in a healthy way. And these are, I'm going to give you, uh, I think, yeah, four key questions that you could ask yourself. And this is like, Am I becoming a Pharisee? When I read the stories of Jesus, is this Pharisee thing, is that speaking to me? I want to say that doesn't make you an evil person, okay? Just makes you a person who has to recalibrate. 
Kind of relook at life and kind of refocus what you're doing. And the first thing that we see in this story is that a question you can ask yourself to see if you're slipping into that Pharisee is, do I know the broken people in my community? Do I know the broken people in my community? One of the interesting things about John 5, and I didn't reread it because we read it a month ago, so you have it memorized by now. But, um, but we, we talked about how, the fair, how this guy gets healed and he's walking and he's carrying his mat. And remember the guy's question, the, the, the teacher's question is, is the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Isn't that a weird thing to say to somebody who's just been healed? The reality is he doesn't know this guy's been healed. He has no clue who this man is. He doesn't know the broken people in his community. The guy was, remember, he was lame for 38 years. He was sitting at the edge of the pool to be healed for 38 years. And that person, this teacher, this one who's supposed to lead people to to their God, who's supposed to show them, had never met him. And he was in the same place for 38 years. I think a lot of times in our communities, we don't know who is broken. Now you may be looking at me and going, well, pastor, everybody's broken. And I'll say, amen to that one. We are. But we don't act that way. We don't treat people with compassion. We don't ask what's going on. We don't try to find out why this man is walking uh, with his mat. Instead, it's just, you're breaking this rule. You're breaking this rule that we've set up. You cannot carry anything on the Sabbath, and therefore, I'm going to slam you about that. And he didn't know him. I want to ask you, do you know the broken people in your community? Do you know who's hurting? Do you know who's lonely? Do you know who's discouraged? Do you know who's hurting? Do you know those people? That's the first step. If if you're laying in your bed and you're kind of examining your life and you're going, how's my life going? And you get to the point where the first question, you don't know any broken people, you got a problem. Because you're not hanging out where Jesus spent his time. Jesus spent his time with broken people. Jesus spent his time with with hurting people. Jesus spent his time with sinners. And remember his response to that when he was accused? They say, well, well, people don't need a doctor. (laughs) It's the sick who do. So people who aren't sinners, they don't need a savior. Now, we know everybody needs a sinner. I mean, everybody needs a Savior. But Jesus was pushing that, saying you need to get to know the brokenness there. The second question that we need to ask ourselves after you know who's broken is, am I more concerned about a broken rule than healed people? Am I more concerned about broken rules then healed people. But he replied, the man who, said, who, who made me get well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. 
And, he st- and get this, the, the person is still not going, wait, tell me more. Tell me more. Instead, he's more concerned about that broken rule. Well, who told you that? Who told you that? Who told you to break the rule and pick up the mat and walk? Who did that? Instead of saying, wait, time out. <clears throat> you couldn't walk before? <laughs> you're, you're healed? But we're more concerned about broken rules. I heard a story one time uh, at a church that, that I was serving. And uh, one time a man came in to, uh, to worship. And he came in with a hat on. And one of the ushers was looking at the man with the hat on. And he came up to him and he said, you know, it's disrespectful. Can you take your hat off in church? And the man got up and he left. And they never saw him again in church. And I'm like, this is, this is crazy. What happened? I said, he didn't come back. Well, I I tracked it down to where he was the husband of one of the ladies who came to church. And he was in church. And and so I I approached her. I said, hey, what happened? I heard this happen, and and he'd never been back. And she shared with me, uh, my husband, years ago, had brain surgery. He had surgery. He has bad eyes. He needs really thick glasses. And he had brain surgery. And he has some, some scars on his head. And he doesn't want to show the scars on his head. You know, he doesn't want people when they talk to stare at, oh, the scars on your head. He doesn't want that to happen. And so he always wears a hat. He always wears a hat. That's just what he does. And you see in that one situation where there was this one gentleman, I mean, nobody else was bothered by it, but there was a one, one gentleman in the church who said, wearing a hat in church is disrespectful. And for you it may be. And I think it's a fine rule, and I don't think it's wrong, but I think at the same time we need to go, are broken, are, is this rule more important than this person who's joining in to worship, to encounter a living God? I think we set up a lot of rules in our lives. We set up a lot of ways in which you have to behave, and you have to talk, and you have to move. And sometimes those rules are great. We set up rules as parents, right? How many of you parents have set up rules in your house? Still waiting for some of you who don't have hands up. (laughs) And if you don't, I don't want to meet your kids. No, just kidding, kidding. But, but we set up rules because we want to raise our kids. We want, to, we want them to be respectful. We want them to be. But we also, at times, you have to overlook a rule with your kids. You have to kind of go, oh, okay. You're more important than that rule we set up. You're much more dear to me than that limit line that we created. We need to do the same thing as Christians in the midst of our world. When I first uh, uh, was planting uh, River Life uh, Covenant Church, I was planting River Life, and I'm going to use his name because he doesn't mind me. He reminds me of this story all the time, and only two people will know him. So uh, I, I met a guy named Kip Grubb. Kip was an a architect in town, and uh, his wife ended up being the chair of the church, I mean, the, uh, my my uh, secretary, and he ended up being the chair of the church. 
Uh, he's actually still on the, he's on the leadership team again right now. But um, <clears throat> when I first met Kip, another guy uh, who we'd met, uh, Doug Kendall, introduced me to Kip, and we all went golfing together. And Kip in his heart determined that what he was going to do was he was going to try to shock me. Because Doug's saying, I want you to meet this pastor. And so what Kip did was, I think by the ninth hole, he had three scotches. I mean, I, I think he had that. And Kip's language that day playing golf was like, whoa. I mean, it, it, it reminded me of my brothers, you know. I have two brothers who, who would just, and, and he, he said he deliberately did this. And he said what amazed him the most was I never even shuddered at anything he said or it never even, I didn't go, hey, you need to quit drinking. I just, I just talked to him like a normal person. I talked to him about life. I, talked to him, I told him why I was planting a church. I told him about God. I told him about all these things. And Kip actually grew up in church, but had walked away and wasn't really interested in church at that time in his life. And he said, you know why I came when you guys started worship services? Because of that. He said, because you didn't care. You just were talking about God. You're talking about Jesus with a guy who could barely walk. He said, he loved that. And he changed his life after that, and his life was transformed. But, but you see, when we set rules aside, when we set these expectations aside, God works and he heals people. I think sometimes, well, we'll talk about that one later. Um, <clears throat> the third question we should ask is, how do I limit the work of God? Or and of Jesus. And we talked about this, so I'm going to hit this real quick. But we talked about this last month, that God is at work. Believe that God is at work, and so is Jesus still. Just believe that. But I think we could become Pharisees by limiting what God does, what God can do. How God will do it. There are miracles in my life that I look at that God did something different. I shared a little bit about uh, sitting in the back of a church in, in the little village of San Luis, Mexico, and, and recommitting my life to God. I mean, Mexico, Mexico mission trips have a huge place in my heart. But I didn't talk about what led up to that. It was 1984, and I had qualified for the Olympic trials in swimming. And my appendix burst. And I couldn't make the trials meet. It burst. I mean, they went in, they took all the, the gunk out, and I actually laid in the hospital for a week with an open wound as they continued to get the infection out. I went home, and I was so angry at God. In fact, to show you how angry I was, my pastor came to the hospital and said, uh, he walked into my room and said, can I pray for you? And I told him, no, I don't want you to. What he did was stand outside the door just so I could see his elbow and he prayed out there. But my youth pastor, I couldn't say no to because he used to be an offensive lineman in the NFL. So there was no way I was saying no to Dave. But a week after that, after I arrived home, Dave called me up and he said, do you want to go to Mexico? And I said, I don't want to go get dirty and sit in a village and live in a town. I don't want to do that. And knowing my relationship with my family and my, in my home life at that time, he said, well, you can get out of the house for a week. I said, okay, I'll be there. 
And that's when I went down to Mexico. It wasn't my plan. It wasn't how I'd want God to change my life. I would have loved to have swam in that meat. But he did. He changed my life in that. He's still at work. And I think in our lives, God changes them in weird hows. He changes them in ways that we don't necessarily expect or want. And he even changes your life and he brings you good things and great things and wonderful things even in the midst of when you're going through life and you're going through a terrible road. That doesn't mean the terrible road's good. But God can take that bad thing. This is what makes God God. Nobody else can take bad things and make good things come out of it. But God can He didn't make the bad thing happen in your life. He didn't make the bad thing happen in somebody else's life, but he made the good thing come out of it. And that's how God can turn it around. And the last question we need to ask ourselves is, do we listen to Jesus more than we talk about him? There's a lot of people who like to talk about Jesus. People like me. But there's others, too, who just talk about Jesus, talk about Jesus, talk about Jesus. And we don't stop. And we don't look at the fluidity of life and go, I need to stop and really ask, who is Jesus? I need to get myself in his word so I could hear that. That's why I read that big section at the end, because it was Jesus saying, this is who I am. This is who I am. Sometimes we read long sections of Jesus and we get uncomfortable because sometimes Jesus talks about, like there, I'm a judge. I decide what's right and wrong. And we don't like that. Well, we need to listen to it. We need to stop and pray and we don't only need to pray and talk to God, but we need to pray and listen to God. And listen to how the Holy Spirit's using that situation, that word of God, that moment in the midst of your life and speaking to you. We need to listen to God a lot more. We need to listen to Jesus a lot more. I love, I I had the opportunity when, when, uh, after last month, I went out to lunch with uh, Brett and Jimeline and Drew, and we were heading down, and I got to talk with Brett about your search team and the makeup of the search team and what's going on with the search team. And I really loved listening to it because Brett was just talking about the focus on discernment, not just grabbing the next person, oh, that person's great, let's get them in there, but discernment, listening to God. What does God have for us in this moment? How is he leading us here? I want to encourage you to use these questions, use these gauges in the midst of your life. I think you need to stop and and, and at least daily and ask yourself, what is God doing here? What's going on in in this moment? The final slide here. Uh, is, a, is one of my favorite places in the world. Uh, not this place, but where, it, it's, where it's at. I don't spend a lot of time at this airport. But uh, this is uh, the, Ro- the Roatan uh, International Airport in Honduras. 
it's, a, it's an island off the north of Honduras in uh, the Caribbean. And uh, as a diver, I love this island. I mean, there's, there's great diving there. But I remember the first time I went there, I went, I went to there, I was leading a mission trip in Honduras on the mainland. And we were gone for two weeks, and so we went to the mainland, we did some, we built a church, we helped out a house, and we did some uh, stuff with the kids, and we, we did that, all this short-term kind of stuff uh, that goes on. But the last day of the trip that we were there, we flew over to the island from La Ceiba, which is the closest mainland city, and we flew and we, we landed at this airport, which was much smaller than this. This is now a newer picture. And then uh, we went snorkeling. And it was, it, was, it was just gorgeous. And we spent the day just kind of debriefing, talking, and, and enjoying. And uh, the, one of the things that you'll find when you go to countries, even countries that really are in desperate need of help, like Mexico or Honduras, is the people there love to show you their country. They're proud of their country. They love it. And so they loved showing us this. But we had uh, 15 people, and we were all in a little plane like that one there. You could barely see it. Uh, but, uh, and so I sat in the back of the plane, uh, and they had like a little luggage thing with a luggage net that went over the luggage. And I sat there holding onto the net. That was my seat because I was the leader of the trip, and so, you know, everybody else got seats. I didn't. And, uh, and uh, you know, the cockpit was open. There was no door between the cockpit and the people, and it was just kind of this, this little plane. But as we were leaving, we had the last flight out of uh, Roatan, and it was raining. The problem with rain and wind back then is they really didn't have an airport that could, that could deal with that. They didn't have lights. They didn't have all that. And so and we had to fly to La Ceiba. Because early the next morning, we were driving to San Pedro Sula to fly out. Let's just say we were time crunched. And we get to this island, and, and our plane gets delayed. And they start saying, we may not have another flight out today. And we're sitting there, and we're starting to get nervous. And the team is in this little kind of holding room about as big as, well, maybe twice as big as the little lobby over here. Maybe as big as that one. They had all of us in there kind of sitting there waiting, 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 waiting. And we talked to the gate agent. No, they're not going to be leaving. They're not going to be leaving. They're not going to be leaving. And suddenly there was a break in the weather. And two guys came crashing through the door in pilot's garb. And they said, Andale, Andale, Andale. And they just ran out. I mean, like ran out the door and started running across the tarmac to the plane. They get to the plane, they throw down the, 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 the uh, stairs. And we're like, okay. And, and the gate agent's like, ah. And so we start running. We start running. We all get in the plane. We all get in our seat. I mean, they started taxiing before all the seatbelts were, were fastened. I mean, we're getting on this plane. They're starting to go. And over the radio, you could hear the tower telling them to turn back in Spanish. Uh, the guy I was sitting uh, kind of right behind was, was one of our translators, and, and he's looking at me, and he's going, they're telling them to turn back, and they're not turning back. And they're not even answering it. They just start, you know, you see them put the thing down, and they go, and they just start going down this front. And you could see this wall of rain in front of us. And we hit that, and they're the big drops. You know, we, we had those this year, these big raindrops coming down, and the wind, and they look like they're coming sideways out of the sky, and we're going down this runway, and the plane could barely even hold on to the runway. It's getting blown so hard. And then it takes off. 
Or at least I thought it did because we really started going sideways like this, just like this uh, off the, off the uh, runway. And we just start taking off like this. And you could see these guys and they were just intent as they were flying this plane. I just want to tell you, some of you look nervous right now. We all made it all right. Okay. So just want to tell you, I, I, I'm alive. I'm okay. And so we get up and they finally turn the plane around and we start going over the ocean uh, to the mainland. We start going. But they did it. They, they never looked up the whole time. They looked at the instruments. They looked at where they were. What was it? Tell, what? Where were we? How are we going? What direction are we hitting in? Whoa, we're sideways. What do we need to do to fix this? You know, they're just looking at that. You could see them kind of talking and just looking at the instruments. And they got it going straight. And I think the craziest thing in this whole thing um, was, you know, you look around in the plane, you had, you had Spanish-speaking pilots, you had English-speaking passengers, and all the instructions in the plane were in Russian. <laughs> it's probably where they bought the plane, you know? And it was just crazy. And so we're flying, and then we get, and we, and we get, and it kind of calms down, and we're flying over the water. And remember those old cars that had those little win windows, the little triangle windows? They had those on the plane. They opened them. We're flying in a plane. And that's when everybody just starts laughing. And we head across. It's just a funny story to say this. When life goes sideways, look at the instruments. Look at the gauges. Take assessment. Where am I? What's going on? What's happening? Do I know, do I, am, am I compassionate, am I in a compassionate place? Are the rules more important than healed people? Because let's face it, ministry is messy. Ministry is messy. But most of all, ask yourself, are you limiting what God is doing? And am I listening to who Jesus is? May we be a people who listen to who Jesus is. I want to say a personal note here. I believe that's one of the benefits that you have in your transition pastor. There are very few pastors I know who have developed habits and a rhythm of listening to who Jesus is the way Jeff Mitchell has. And so you guys are fortunate for that. Take that on as you move to the next step.